fit. Frank O'Neill, M.D. He could still see the shingle in his mind, the neat, white, clabbered building behind it. Instead, this. Early Monday morning and a dead man lying in his own filth. So, what do you think? Willis asked. Poisoning? O'Neill said, shrugging. Or maybe a heart attack, Monroe said. They drag us out the crack of dawn. Some guy had a heart attack, Monahan said. No, it wasn't a heart attack, O'Neill said. It wasn't the crack of dawn, either. It was 9.20 a.m. by the victim's bedside clock. This was the first squeal Willis and Carella had caught today, an excellent way to start the week. Carella hadn't said much since he'd got here with Willis. The victim's cleaning lady had called the police when she came into the apartment to find her employer lying beside the bed in his own mess. The responding blues had phoned back to the 8-7 with a corpse. Carella and Willis had informed homicide because at first glance and smell it didn't look like death from natural causes. In this city, homicides and suicides were investigated in exactly the same manner and the appearance of homicide detectives at the scene was mandatory, even though the case officially belonged to the precinct detectives. Carella still wasn't saying anything. He was a tall man with dark hair and brown eyes, slanted slightly downward, giving his face a somewhat oriental cast. Monroe guessed Carella had played high school baseball. He looked like a ball player, moved like one too. Monroe liked him somewhat better, but not much, than most of the cops at the 8-7. The bulls up here took things too serious. Carella had a very serious look on his face now, an almost pained expression, as he stared down at the dead man on the carpet. "'So what are we saying to cause?' Monaghan asked. "'Poisoning?' "'Cause unknown,' O'Neill said, "'until we do the autopsy.' "'Cause he's thrown up and shit in his pants,' Monroe said, laughing. "'Cause he's lack of toilet training,' Monaghan said, laughing with him. "'Any idea when he died?' Willis asked. "'Not until autopsy,' O'Neill said, and snapped his satchel shut. "'Enjoy yourselves, lads,' he said pleasantly, and started out of the room. The black woman who had discovered the body was clearly frightened. She had never had trouble with the police in her entire life, and she believed she had plenty of trouble now. None of it her doing, neither. She sat in a chair across the room, watching the huddle of law enforcement officers around the body. Flashbulbs were popping everywhere. People with all kinds of equipment were going all over the room, doing things. As the doctor—she guessed he was a doctor, he had a satchel—went out of the room— Somebody said, "'You through here?' And he nodded and waved his hand in dismissal. Somebody else began sprinkling some kind of powder around the body, outlining it. "'Try not to step in the shit,' Monaghan said. "'It may be evidence.' It was, in fact, evidence. The techs would be scooping it up, together with the vomit, for delivery to the lab on High Street.' It was a messy case all around. "'You don't need us anymore. We'll be breezing along,' Monroe said. 
You could maybe open some windows when the techs get through dusting, Monahan offered. Both men shrugged, put away the handkerchiefs, and started for the door, passing a pair of 911 cops who came in with a stretcher, a rubber sheet, and a body bag. <laughs> you got your work cut out for you, Monahan said, and walked out. They were through interrogating the cleaning lady in five minutes flat, convinced that her role in this was entirely innocent and, in fact, praiseworthy. She had discovered a dead body and had immediately called the police. During the course of the interview, she had identified her employer as Jerome McKinnon. Now, as the tech boys went around the room dusting for latent fingerprints, vacuuming for hairs and fibers, collecting the noisome body fluids on the rug, Willis and Corella began searching for evidence to corroborate the identification. On the dresser opposite the bed,